Hey, Digitally China is produced together with our friends at Radii, an independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadioChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's R-A-D-I-I-China.com. I think I remember reading articles about this. Like maybe someone's going to crack the China code finally. Now the adults are in the room. That was, uh, and you're spot on. That was the attitude, and that was the uh, the part of the arrogance that we showed up with as well.、Mm. And that was challenged by the market. Let's <laughs> put it that way. So my name is、uh, Tim He. I am a venture investor. A good number of years ago, I,、uh, I lived in China and co-founded、uh, Gaopeng, which was the joint venture between Groupon and Tencent. I was part of the the early crew who landed on the ground, and we built a, a fairly sizable business out of it.、Uh, now, of course, nothing is straightforward in China, but we'll get back to that. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech, tech industry. industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. Today's episode is very much about the earlier days of the Chinese technology sector, which I'm super curious about. But before we get into that, I'm a little bit curious about what you currently do here in Scandinavia. Yeah, absolutely. So I work for、uh, a Swedish investment company called、uh, Shinavik, and、uh, we are、um, doing both early stage venture but also late stage growth companies.、Mm-hmm. I lead our efforts here in the Nordics on the early stage venture. So we look for technology companies, primarily in e-commerce, in、uh, financial services, and in healthcare. And we try to use our capital, use our knowledge, our our networks to help these companies become、uh, ultimately big companies. How did you get into China technology to begin with? I would love to say there was a grand plan behind it all, but there wasn't. It was a little bit by coincidence, actually. I was in Shanghai with my wife. She was doing a research project in Shanghai.、Uh, this is Christmas of 2010.、Hmm. I was there. I posted on Facebook, as we all do, where we are. Those were the days a decade ago. And a friend of mine saw it and said, "We have a common friend who's in China right now. He's、uh, he's just arrived. He's he's building a team to launch a new business."、Hmm. I thought, "Okay, a fellow Dane <laughs> in、uh, China. I should go have a coffee."、Yeah. So I, I met with him. And、uh, he was sent over from Rocket Internet to build up the Chinese Groupon business. And Rocket Internet at this time was an owner and led international expansion for Groupon. So Groupon at the time had bought a German business called My City Deals that Rocket Internet started, which was a clone of the U.S. business. <laughs> When they saw that, what、uh, Rocket did was they expanded to five countries in Europe very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So Groupon bought them for equity and tasked them with their international expansion. Yeah. So everywhere, including China, was led from a rocket perspective with Groupon influences. So I met with them and immediately we fell into a, a good、uh, chat. And he basically said, "Look, join now, be part of the co-founding team. I don't need you in five months. I need you on the ground now." So I went back, spoke to my wife, spoke to one of my entrepreneurship professors back at、uh, at Harvard, who、um, who actually encouraged me to go to China for it. You're allowed to take time off if it's for an interesting purpose,、yeah. and this qualified. So I quote unquote dropped out, as everyone must do once in their life, and moved to China. How was your first impression of Beijing? 
I'm from Beijing, so so I'm quite familiar with Beijing. Um, no, Beijing is uh, is was was interesting at the time, right? Because this is back in 2011 mm-hmm. and 2012 when we spent all all our time there, and uh, pollution was still quite bad. Mm-hmm. Right, pollution was bad. Traffic is probably the same or worse today. But when you're young, you don't have children. You're two people. Everything is a little bit easier. So it was a good experience. So 2010, around that time, was in the middle of the super internet hype, especially in Beijing with all the VCs and all the money being thrown around. I've heard these crazy stories about you know people just walking down the street in Zhongguancun, you know the Silicon Valley of Beijing, right, and just being offered money from random VCs at coffee shops. <laughs> was it really like that? I'm not sure it was that um, at that level, but but there was a lot of activity. Right. Mm. I mean, a lot of people were jumping out of their jobs, uh, ju- jumping out of college and whatnot, and going straight into a startup. If you just look to the Groupon sector, when we entered China beginning of 2011, we were late to the market. So Groupon in the States had been operating for a couple of years, two, three yeah. years. And uh, a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs had taken notice. So when we entered China, there were, we estimate, about 2,000 group buying sites in China operational already. So... About two years before, Groupon had been founded in the U.S., right? So tell me about that current stage of Groupon 2010, like globally. It was it was very hyped. By the end of 2010, Groupon had received two acquisition offers, one wow. from Google and one from Yahoo. I think it was 6 and $4 billion or so back in 2010. Those were big numbers. Like two years after founding, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so it was it was really taking off in the US. They expanded from Chicago out into the coast cities and it really took off. The hype was there. So when people took notice of that, that spread to Europe, that spread to Asia. And China is an interesting one because group buying as a concept has existed in China for centuries, right? Just not online. It was quite common for people to get together with your neighbors or with your villagers to pool things together and then bargain as a group. Yeah. So that was in the DNA of the of the Chinese behavior. And that's why I think that when we entered the market, there were so many competitors. I mean, we had more competitors than anywhere else in the world. 2,000 is a big number. So before you said yes to the job and before you entered Beijing, did you knew you were going to have 2,000 competitors? No, my... my in- Immediate thought around the opportunity was I had always wanted to try and work in China. Mm -hmm. I think Chinese, having grown up abroad, you know, our competitiveness versus a smart person in China is not quite there. (laughs) So how do you actually enter that market? And here was uh, an obvious opportunity. If it worked out, great. If it didn't work out, I could always go back to to my studies and finish that off. Mm -hmm. So when you came to Beijing... Do you remember those first days? Was it panic because you realized, shit, we got 2,000 competitors or, you know? No, not at all. We're all very excited, Mm. right? I think there were just so many things and tasks to do. From Rocket and Groupon side, we got a handbook saying, this is how you build your team, this is how you build your product, and this is how you build a new market. So I sat with that, we looked through it, 
and basically decided that it doesn't apply to China. Yeah. The Chinese infrastructure was just so different from everywhere else. You didn't have Google, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have any of those things. You had Baidu, you had uh, WeChat, was still young at that point in time. You had Weibo, that was the biggest thing. Yeah. QQ was still big. Mm-hmm. So the whole infrastructure around marketing, how, how do we tackle that? And our website, how do we sell? Because Groupon everywhere in the world was telesales. You would have an army of people hitting the phones. In China, if you get a call from an unknown number, you don't pick up. You know that, right? And you get spam calls all day long. So how do you tackle that? You needed a sales force that actually walks the street. And how do you how do you make that efficient? How do you make that acquisition cost work? So there were all these practical challenges that we had to solve. When you started off in China, you had this handbook. I guess that gave you some type of sense of security or... It gave us some comfort, right? It gave us um, a direction. Mm-hmm. Now, now this handbook has been handed down. So if you talk to, to people who want to do international expansion today, whether it's in Europe, US or Asia, you would often hear people talk about the, the Uber handbook. Yeah. Right? Uber has done a great job expanding internationally. And what you find is that there are traces of all of it. There are traces of it that we can draw a straight line back to the Groupon days. Groupon's international expansion was pretty impressive. I think we were close to 50 countries when we IPO'd. Yeah. And that is starting just within two years of stepping foot outside your core market. Of course, it gave some comfort, but mm. we had a lot of respect for the Chinese market. Of the co-founding group, we were five people. I was the only one who spoke Chinese, who was <laughs> ethnic Chinese, although I would, I couldn't really claim myself as being Chinese Chinese as yeah. I hadn't spent the, the last 20 years there. But I spoke the language, I understood the culture a bit better. My co-founders at the time were were German, Danish, and Brazilian. Even today, a lot of companies struggle with the localization of China. Yeah. So how much was internal communication to get people to understand that you had to change everything? I think it dawned on people pretty quickly because when you arrived in China, the Great Firewall at that point in time wasn't that secure. So you mm-hmm. could still get on Gmail once in a while and so forth, <laughs> depending on... Uh, on the geopolitical chatter, but uh, people realized very quickly that they could not rely on existing channels. Now, our partner in China, our JV partner was Tencent, who is very fluent in social media, online, everything Chinese, and they helped us, guide us to a certain extent. But at that point in time also, Tencent was primarily geared towards teenagers. Their user group was, you know, sub 25. Mm -hmm. And while they knew the market, it didn't really benefit us because they didn't really have the purchasing power that we were looking for. So we understood very quickly that we had to build things a little bit differently. And from a localization perspective, I remember very distinctly one of the first big discussions that we had with the international product team was website design. Because internationally, it had been proven that the bigger pictures, the better conversion. And that mantra still holds today. But that dictates a few things. That dictates that you have very reliable high-speed internet, which you couldn't always find. 3G was there, but it was spotty. You could sit on your office computer and whatnot, but it wouldn't be the 100 megabit that we're used to here. And then secondly, Chinese websites, the way that Chinese characters are set up, the way you read Chinese is you actually skim diagonally and not line by line hmm. that we're used to from the West. 
So when we read a text, when we even if we skim it in English or any alphabetic text, we skim from left to right, line by line by line. Mm-hmm. In Chinese, what we found out is you scan diagonally. You start top left, and then you go towards the bottom right. You don't go line by line. Mm. And you look for keywords and key characters. So the website had to be relatively quick to load, so relatively uh, photo light. And it had to be text-heavy in a way where you could scan all these things. So it just looked fundamentally different. And to many of us coming from the West, it looked ugly. Right? Another example is people really like flashing Christmas lights on their mm-hmm. websites. <laughs> I never quite understood that. But if you go to Chinese websites, even today, you often have that. Flashing lights, flashing pictures and whatnot. It's quite distracting, but it works because that's what people are used to. And yeah. it works for that culture. I mean, these are obvious nuances that you could pick up on, but then there were all the subtle ones. Mm -hmm. Another example from that is um, there was a time where I came to the office and we were on, I forget how many floors, but you had to take an elevator and I step into the elevator. The minute I step in, a bunch of our colleagues step out. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Did you all take the wrong elevator? (laughs) And then then, uh, another colleague told me, no, no, that's because um, you're a senior executive. You stepped in, so they stepped out. Like, but that doesn't make any sense. I want them to go to the office the same way as I do. And it's not like there wasn't room for me. But there are all these subtle behavioral traits or, or, or customs that you really need to appreciate. Now, we try to keep a very flat Silicon Valley, you know, U.S. Western style mm-hmm. culture. But we did face these challenges, I would call it, that the people were just adhered to certain organizational hierarchical Um, structures, and it was quite hard to break them out of it. I could imagine as well that in the early days, you had to change a lot. You as a team to sit down and really redesign the entire business flow from scratch. Yeah. And one of the things that that came up in that process was uh, quality assurance, um, which was a function that existed internationally purely from a marketing perspective. Is this type of marketing allowed by marketing laws? In China, it would have been a little bit different because in China, we had to adhere to that, but also we had to ensure that the restaurant that we signed a deal with had the license to operate. Another example is that they had the license to sell alcohol mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And it turns out that most restaurants did not have their own license. They were borrowing their neighbors or someone else's license to operate. And most of them did not have an alcohol license either. They were, again, either selling without a license or they were selling on someone else's license. So we had to create a department to to check these things mm. because the last thing we wanted was some international PR saying Groupon in China is messing everything up because that would affect not just us in China, that would affect everyone. And we knew that we had a path towards IPO. So we had to be quite conservative in what we could do. So one of the innovations from the Chinese venture was was a proper quality assurance department. At the same time, that was not an issue any of your 2,000 local competitors had. They probably didn't have any type of QA department. No, exactly. Um, and that was one of the, the hard realizations over time, which was being the only international player on the Mm. market. Even though it was a JV with a very large Chinese entity, we still had a mark on our back. Everything we did would have been double-checked, triple-checked by the media locally and potentially internationally. 
Mm. And it just meant that our cost was higher than everyone else's. We had to do things that, uh, that the others didn't have to do. We truly believed that we had the stronger product, the stronger strategy, and with the international network that we had a, a, a stronger product offering as well. There were all these um, tensions. So not just with your partner, there are tensions to the press, there's tensions to the market, and you have to operate under that. So it was, it was a very interesting time. I see this image in front of me. You, late night, Beijing, at a local restaurant, eating barbecue, and <laughs> your phone just doesn't stop ringing. And everyone's contacting you, your local sales team, whatever. We need to get this client through, or Tencent's calling, or like, it must have been exhausting that time. It was, but at the same time, it was accelerating. Yeah. Right? Because we, we truly felt that we owned the Chinese business that we were going to build something that no one else had achieved. And we truly believed that. And as a team, we ran very, very fast. So we had a saying inside on our team, which was, we don't have to be the best, we just have to be the fastest. Because if you run faster than all your competitors, you can iterate, or go, you can make more mistakes than everyone else. Yeah. There's an element of truth to that, of course, but there's also a restriction, and that's capital. The more mistakes you make, the more capital you burn up. Yeah. And if you compare from that perspective, most of our competitors were actually better funded than we were. I really believe that that's one of the big business learnings from the Chinese technology sector. You're seeing that best product usually doesn't win. It is always only best execution, i.e. running fastest. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're right about that. It's uh, Execution is king. And if we just take a look at the traditional Groupon business, right? So uh, as you explained, you have two parts. You have one part where you need to sign up new merchants, restaurants or whatnot, selling and offering those deals. And on the other hand, you had a pretty big also offline machine to get in actual people to buy those deals together. Yeah, I remember the first deal that went live was a karaoke, a very, very famous karaoke near Thanetuan in Beijing. And deals go live at midnight. Mm. So it got sold and everything. And uh, that particular deal, that merchant called up our team an hour before going live and said, uh, I have some concerns. I would like to speak to your leaders. Mm. So we uh, we took a cab over and, and we arrived at their doorsteps around midnight. Mm. We're taking him into the little back room and the guy came in, and he just wanted to drink beer with us. And I thought it was the most bizarre thing ever, right? Because we just wanted to save the deal. We could not have the first deal go live in China be a fiasco. Mm -hmm. So this guy just wanted to meet us. He wanted to drink beer with us, and then everything was okay. I mean, it was it was bizarre on so many levels. Um, but we saved that deal, and uh, and we went live. <laughs> how, how many bought it? I think it was... It was over a thousand, maybe two thousand people bought it. It was a very successful deal. Okay. It was a good start. So that night, when you almost lost the deal and you got to drink beer with the Lauban or the boss. Yes. What karaoke songs did you sing? So he offered us to go to a karaoke room, and we kindly declined. Had oh. another beer and said, "We really have to get home to our families." <laughs> well, that's got to be the first time he heard that. Seriously. I I have no doubt. <laughs> China's a big country, right? You really have to break it down into bits and pieces. You cannot run the entire country out of just one office if you want to be nationwide very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we took the decision that we split the country into three regions. And with this setup, we reached 77 cities at the peak after 10 months. 
Um, our biggest competitor at the time was called Lasho. They had raised about $200 million, burnt most of it. They were in 250 cities. And uh, we never got past 77 cities. Um, but but it was, uh, I mean, at 77, it was a pretty big operation already. At that point, when you reached the peak, how many competitors were there? How big market share did you have? By the time we launched, there was an influx of new competitors because there was a, there was a sense in the market that now the market is mature. Now Groupon has landed in China as well. So we estimate at the peak we had four, maybe 5,000 competitors. And that was, uh, that, uh, that was interesting, right? In the big markets, our, our market share, we probably never got past single digit which in, in Chinese terms are still are still big numbers. We, we reached a top line of uh, $250 or so. From a market competition perspective, just consider this. After the market competition had increased, aggregator sites popped up. So there were aggregator sites out there that claimed that they would pick the best deals from these three, 4,000 sites. And they started charging for the top 10. <laughs> Right? So you could question yourself, are they actually independent players or not? But they saw a business opportunity and said, yeah. if you want to be exposed, because we get all the traffic, and Groupon and Lasho, Meituan mm-hmm. and whoever, you only get your fraction of that traffic. Yeah. We get all of it, or the bulk of it. You can pay us to be in the top 10. Mm. So that tells you a little bit about how, how sick the market was. Around this time, were there any profitability in group buying? If you look at the underlying business metrics, was it? Did you bring any value to you know the restaurants? The value to the restaurants were there, mm. um, that was there, and the value to our customers were there. But it was as in many of these hyped venture capital funded uh, growth stories, mm. it was being subsidized by our, our investors, and that was the case for everyone. It's a highly hyper-competitive market over in China. The Chinese versions of Yelp and Groupon are teaming up. The combined e-commerce company will be worth an estimated $15 billion. The deal is the second time this year that startup companies backed by Alibaba and Tencent have agreed to combine. Now, I'll talk about Meituan, as this company would probably do revenues exceeding $8 billion. So if we fast forward to today, we know who the clear winner in this story was, right? Meituan, and now Meituan Dianping. So if we look back at your years, when did you hear about Meituan the first time? So Meituan was probably started around the same time as we went into China, 2011. Mm. Uh, now Dianping had been around for a longer time. Yeah. Dianping is the Yelp of China, so they had been around from that aggregation perspective. But Meituan started roughly around the same time. And we we took notice of them. They had their own sales teams and they were relatively well-funded at the time. But it wasn't anything that put them on a radar other than it's another one of the larger competitors. The biggest competitor at the time was called Lasho, mm. holding hands. Mm. So they were the ones that everyone was pointing at and saying they were in 250 cities. We need to catch them. Yeah. Meituan wasn't really on the map from that perspective. And initially, they were testing different things as well. They weren't just doing group buying. They were doing a little bit of everything, trying to find their feet. We took notice of them, but it wasn't anything special. When you read the stories about the early days of Meituan, told by the people at Meituan yeah. to be transparent here, then, they talk very much about the type of warrior mentality they built up yeah. internally. They had baiju every night, you know, and drank and cheered and you know all that stuff yeah. was it like that in the industry or do you even believe that i believe that 
Yeah, I believe that. I mean, the the um, business mentality in China is is very warrior like. That's that's my own analysis and opinion of it. I believe that's the lens through which we should consider and evaluate competition in China. Hmm. People are willing to go several extra miles to hurt a competitor. I can give you a, a clear example, which is margins on deals. Yeah. So, so I would go on um, sales visits together with sales teams once in a while. And now remember, we showed up at a at a reasonably known restaurant chain. Yeah. And we sat down with the the general manager there, and he said, you know, the the package that you guys have put together is really good. I like it. The price point works for me. And the only thing I'd like to discuss with you is the margin. So, well, now we can discuss it, but there's much we can do. We usually start at 50% margin on the discounted price, mm -hmm. but here we were down to 10%, yeah. which is uh, which is pretty low. Yeah. We said we're willing to do that because we think we can have a, a long partnership with you and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. He says, well, that's great. It's just I have these other competitors knocking on my door as well. And then he pulled out a number of contracts as well and shows them to me and said, well, these guys charge me 5% margin. Mm. Here's one that doesn't charge me anything. And in fact, here's one that pays me for every deal they sell for me. <laughs> so negative margin. Mm -hmm. I sit there and go like, I mean, I couldn't, maybe, maybe we could consider zero margin for a first deal, yeah. but negative. I mean, I cannot pay you to sell your product. I mean, that just conceptually doesn't work for me. <laughs> Yeah, well, it shouldn't be called a business at that point, right? It shouldn't be called a business at that point. But that's what the competitors were doing. And that gives you a, a sense of this warrior mentality. And mm -hmm. that is, if I cannot be successful, you cannot be successful. <laughs> if I go down, we go down together. If you see the ebbs and flows of how these momentum industries go, there's an element of that, right? So when there's a, a trend, when there's a buzz around something, everyone pours in. Mm. And then they just start to burn each other up. Some are not qualified to do it, but many are. Mm. And they will still do these things, things that you wouldn't do in any other market outside. You wouldn't find that. I mean, you wouldn't consider that rational in the US, in Sweden, in Europe, anywhere, that people would do something like that. So how did that deal end? Well, we, we lost it <laughs> because we just couldn't compete on a negative margin. So if we talk more about Meituan and those early days, from your perspective, when do you think it became clear that they were a, an important player? I mean, they kept showing up, right? And we kept hearing about them. Mm. So wherever you went with a brand, they would have been there before. So we knew that there was some, some traction behind them. But it was a very noisy market at the time as well. Mm. We started noticing them more and more where they became a really big player was towards the end of 2011. I think they took in a big round at that point in time as well. And that's when, when they sort of established as a key player. Because their founder now is obviously very famous, Wang Xing. But before he founded Meituan, he also had done a bunch of other startups. So he actually had a really nice CV. Was he famous in, in your industry around that time? He was spoken about, definitely. I mean, he was, he was a serial entrepreneur. The high growth economy is really driven by these, you know, a set of individuals that can adapt very, very quickly. So group buying, when that became hot, everyone went towards that. Then we had to figure out what will group buying transition to? You know, what will it become one day? Mm. Because as a standalone, the business model was quite flawed as we started to figure out and 
that wasn't just in China, that was everywhere in the world. Mm. And that's where your connections into other partners and the big three became more and more important. And as the only outsider, we had that challenge. We basically ha had our core product mm. and that was it. Now we tried our uh, head of um, business development um, who's running Gaopeng today. So Gaopeng mm. is still alive today. He's quite close to the, um, to the Tencent team. Mm. Alan at WeChat and so forth. And he got us in close with WeChat. Mm. So when WeChat started the first group buying channel, that was under Gaopeng's uh, mandate. Wow, that's like a golden ticket. That, that was a bit of a golden ticket at the time, but we didn't want to sit on it as a monopoly either and Tencent wasn't interested in it. So we, we opened it up for everyone, but trying to monetize the edges of it. And this is the, the very end of my journey with Gaopeng. Mm. So this is mid-2012, late 2012, when we had merged with uh, two other investments that, that Tencent had done in the space, and we merged these three companies together and then kept the Gaopeng brand. I would wish I had a freaking head of business development, no Alan at WeChat. I mean, that would fix a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, he's, uh, he's fantastic. Um, but looking back, there was an element of inflexibility from our side as well. Mm. We belong to a global unit, right? We belong to a global business where there was a heavy focus on core product, mm. which is group buying. In China, you need to be nimble. The more nimble you are, the less married you are to your business model, the more likely you are to pivot or to add things on that may make sense over time. And I actually yeah. think that's one of the things that Meituan has done exceptionally well. If you look at their business today, group buying is just a very small part of it. Yeah. Because it fits in the aggregate of a consumer solution offering. But as a standalone, it didn't really have the, uh, the legs to grow indefinitely. Mm. And we were a little bit too tied and too married to our core. The way I've heard other people talk about it is that the Western mindset always thinks the wave lasts way longer but grows slower. But the Chinese mindset is that you have these ginormous waves short term, but you need to catch a new wave every quarter or whatever if you want your company to continue growing. I haven't heard that analogy before, but that makes a lot of sense. That's actually a great analogy. I buy into that. Do you think that Western mindset came and, I wouldn't say screwed things up, but I would say maybe impacted you quite a lot? It certainly influenced us a lot, mm. uh, myself included. But there was also this dynamic of where's your loyalty and who do you belong to? Yeah. Right? Because Tencent and Groupon are two very different beasts. So we had this dynamic of Rocket Internet leading it, where a lot of the senior executives came from Rocket, who had an, their loyalty towards Rocket. Just before Groupon IPO'd, Rocket pulled out. They had sold their, their stake to Groupon, and they pulled all their people out. And I had an option to, to leave with them, but also felt that there was a, a responsibility to actually keep the business going. Mm. So I stayed behind. So there was that dynamic where you, you had that culture, and then you, you had the Groupon culture, which was a lot more Western. To your analogy with the wave was we have a core product, we have a core strategy, and we believe in that, and that's what we focus on. Focus is important, right? Yeah. And then you had the Chinese side with Tencent and the Tencent executives or sponsored executives, and they had maybe a different mandate. Mm. And, or we know that they had a slightly different mandate. They were in it to learn about sales mm. because Tencent is a product company. 
right? Yeah. Product, 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 product and social and gaming. Sales and commerce is not their uh, strength. So they saw this as an opportunity to learn and Groupon was a tier one sales company. Yeah, we can see that with Meituan, Dianping, Elema, all those companies today in China, right? Being able to operate that type of huge offline sales force yeah. working in a very complex environment such as China from Beijing tier one to tier four, where yeah. people will literally hit you in the face. You know? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's where Meituan, you know, being local and and having that local sales expertise really benefited them. They started off being the the leader in tier two and, and three cities. Yeah, and it's only when we went into those that we started to to face them more head on. But then mm-hmm. they expanded upstream, if you will, back into the tier ones. So they have they have done that very well. Did they do anything specifically that you saw that you know made them win in the end? Or I think, if I recall correctly, Meituan was the first that unlocked cinema tickets. So I think they were the first ones who unlocked a digital link to the largest cinema chain in China where you could buy their tickets at market price through Meituan. Oh. And that created a buzz and people started using them for that because that would have created a different wave of different customers. Yeah. And the retention would be there because if you want a cinema ticket and you don't want to go stand in line, you have to use Meituan. Mm. And that would make sense. So extending into more full price but other offerings that are more recurring was one of the strengths. So... When you left China and and when you entered your about two year experience, what type of feelings did you leave the country with going back to Harvard? Then? It was it was a, it was a mixed set to be honest. I mean, yeah. one was um, I was sad to leave behind something that we had built, yeah. but uh, from a family perspective and so forth, it made sense. So we uh, so we left end of uh, end of twelve. Yeah, because from a Western perspective, right, if you look at a CV and you look at someone and you say, oh, I did that for two years, everyone says, oh, you didn't even start. Right. You know? But from a Chinese perspective, that's like a lifetime. Yeah, two years in China is really a lifetime. I mean, I can just tell you the numbers. We started five people on the ground. Yeah. And in nine, ten months, we peaked at 3,700 plus people, 3,700. Mm-hmm. That's a staggering number. And I'm not sure that's the right way to build a business but we definitely showed that we could it's an experience i wouldn't be without today so at the time when you're having four or five thousand competitors how did you feel in your daily life you you start to lose track of them and you shouldn't we ultimately just focus on our own business but you must have had a huge talent drain. I mean, I would imagine if I were going to start a competitor group on in China, the first place I would go would literally go to your office and steal a bunch of people. Yeah, and that's what we did with the competitors as well. <laughs> um, that's that's exactly how we did it, actually. We we were standing outside uh, their offices handing out business cards. Yeah, I think this got publicized at some point. We're standing outside... Uh, BCG's office and McKinsey's office and handing out business cards. It so turns out that not all management consultants, while very smart, are capable of becoming um, entrepreneurs. But but it was a very interesting dynamic. We also had cases where competitors sent effectively spies, if you will, you know, their employees Mm -hmm. to be hired by us to learn or see how things are on our end. Did you care about that? Did you try to identify them or... 
Not really. Yeah. Not really. Of course, if you if you found one, you would try and get rid of them. And we had a couple of bad apples. If you hit three thousand seven hundred people, yeah. there ought to be a couple of bad apples. How did that work? Did they steal stuff from you, or just learn and you know go back and report? Um, we had people who would uh, take advantage of our uh, credit system, so steal effectively, mm. and we could trace the emails back. And one of the guys uh, used his uh, company email as the starting point, which was probably not the best thing to do, but nonetheless. So we caught that guy. Um, no, but I mean, in in any big organization, yeah, in any big organization where you're dealing with you know, thousands of people, it's inevitable. Yeah, but it's not something that occupies your day, day in and day out. You have so many other fires that you're trying to put out. A deal that doesn't go online, or a deal that's gone on- online but can't ship. Or it can be uh, organizationally, there are conflicts, there are difficulties with the teams. There are so many things. Yeah. We actually had an episode recently titled, Will the next Enron come from China? Question mark. And we interviewed this guy that had been working at one of the largest food delivery services in China, not made from Denping. So. And where he would say that every month they would get an email with a list of people, the employee number, their full name, how much money they stole, and really? what penalty they got with police. And literally, like I'm talking about this year, yeah. right? So very recent. And the way they would do that would be that they would go to a local restaurant, then would say, I'll make sure you get discounted, blah, 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 if you give me a kickback. Because you're going to sell more, but don't give the company kickback. Just give yeah. me the kickback. I mean, that happened to, to us as well. Yeah. I mean, sales folks are smart. I mean, sales folks are, are smart and sometimes a little bit too smart for their own good. <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing that they will figure out quickly, it's mm. the commission structure. Yeah. Whatever commission structure model that you put in place, you can be sure that someone will take advantage of it. Yeah. Right. So to answer your question around Enron in China, maybe and maybe not. I think people are people have it in the back of their mind that these things are going on. Mm. Um, I mean, there were cases where where salespeople would would come up to me and then have me sign cash advances to close deals, and I would ask them, "What's that for?" It wasn't big numbers, but I would ask him, "You know, why? Why do you need two thousand yuan mm. to close a deal?" He says, "Well, it's just to sweeten it." And I go, "Well, as a marketing subsidy, or as a, you know, what do we get out of it?" And he says, "Nothing more than close to deal." Mm. Well, to me, that's a bribe. I can't I can't sign mm. that document. So I send it back saying I can't I can't sign that and we shouldn't do that. And he goes, well, that's market practice in China. If you don't sign it, I just go to one of the other executives. Mm. I go, well, I can't sign it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think people have that in mind. There's just a slightly different set of rules to be part of the game in China. Yeah. And there's a there's a you know clear line somewhere, but the longer you are in China, the more blurry that becomes. I can give you an example without naming the company. One of my old colleagues there came from it. Um, it's a global mm. <laughs> telecommunications infrastructure provider. And they would swap out their management team, senior management team in China, every five years, mm. consequently. Whether they've done good, bad, whatever, every five years, they would just rotate the entire senior team. Wow. And they do that because they realize that the market, so to speak, corrupts you over time. So if you don't want to end up as an Enron at some point, I mean, there are plenty of other companies than Enron. Now we're just picking on them, but um, you have to take the consequence that you need new blood in the company every so often. And that's that's quite telling for the market. Mm. 
And that's that's something that I personally, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about. Sort of, you know, should I stick around in China and uh, and go to another? I mean, there were plenty of opportunities mm. jumping from from Gapong that had a great reputation into one of the other you know, big three or or a startup there. And we ultimately decided that it's probably time to to leave. Mm. There were certain things that we just couldn't square, mm. but the market is still exciting. I mean, I still have some of my best friends there, old colleagues that are doing fantastic work there. Mm. But it is a market that that just behaves differently, um, and we just need to respect that. Yeah, the simple word is chaotic, right? But the more complex answer is that it is not one country. It is a mix of a gazillion different cultures and people with different uh, values, but also different standards and different realities. In some parts of the country, people care about those extra 50 RMB, like it's life or death, and in some you don't. So. Meituan Dianping IPO'd. Their founder has been elevated to very close to a Jack Ma and Pony Ma level, I would say, in China at least, from yeah. a, you know being a celebrity perspective. And most importantly, I think they are the only company that have proven that they really know how to scale offline in China, mm. which is kind of complex when you have that many cities and 1.34 billion people. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Do you think that knowledge or that grit or whatever you would want to call it, is that exportable? That's an excellent question. There are always lessons from China that we should draw on. Mm. There's, um, I mean, there are ways that you do things in China that initially seem a little bit old-fashioned, mm. but it's simple and it works. Whereas in, in Europe and the U.S., we tend to over-productize simple things. I mean, we can take the QR code. Yeah. It's used everywhere in China. Yeah. It's a dead technology outside. Mm. But it works. Every smartphone has a camera, and it doesn't have to be a very good camera, mm. and they can communicate through that. We just don't use it. We would rather productize it as a token, as a uh, you know digital identity or something. In China, because there's so many people, because the infrastructure is so varied, if you go to a tier four city, you might get a smartphone, but it's not going to be a high-quality one. Mm. You need to adapt to all of that. So you need to find a solution that works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And often that's the simplest solution. So I think that's, that's definitely a lesson that we can draw from it. I would hesitate to draw direct practical execution lessons mm-hmm. in terms of we take this product and lift it out of China and put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that would work very well. The infrastructure is just too different. If you think about these, um, you were alluding to it a little bit, Meituan is is one of the few super apps in China. Mm. You go through it and you can do just about everything. WeChat is the other. Mm. Right? And Ali wants to be it, Didi now wants to be it, and so on and so forth. Everyone is fighting for that spot. Mm. And one of the, the truly telling things that I think we can all learn from has been when Ali and Tencent looked at the operating system world for for smartphones. They saw Android and they saw iOS. Mm. Microsoft and Symbian and so forth, they were already dying at that point in time. Yeah. But they looked at it and said, we can never compete. How do we operate under an environment where other people own the operating system? Yeah. Because everyone wants to be the OS. That's yeah. the definition of a super app. Exactly. So that's what they became. Mm. Right. If you buy a phone in China, and you know this living there, if you buy a phone in China, the first app you download is WeChat. Yeah. Because without WeChat, you can't do anything. Mm. You can't pay your electricity bill. 
So WeChat is your operating system on your phone, irrespective of you having Android or iOS. They've just thought about the world in a completely different way. Yeah. We shouldn't generalize too much, but I haven't seen many examples of that where you sort of flip the thinking upside down mm. outside of China. Mm. You don't really see super apps outside because people are piggybacking on iOS infrastructure, Android yeah. infrastructure, and so on and so forth. We're just plucking into these things. Whereas in China, they're really thinking about how do we take it over without yeah. replacing it. Yeah. Well, it is the same learnings as if you, again, go back to May 12 and being the operating system for offline, yes. you could say. And, and they're very like very keen on branding themselves as it. But but then you go over to Europe, let's say, and you look at all these different apps, whether it is Yelp or OpenTable or whatnot, and you see that all of them has a starting point to actually become that. Yes. And then you ask yourself, why hasn't it happened here? Do you think it's just a cultural thing? or I think it's partly cultural. Um, one is you don't have the competitive tension. You don't have hundreds or thousands of other apps trying to kill you. Everyone is happy with, okay, you've won this, I'm going to go do something else. Or I'm going to do it slightly different than you so that we don't compete head on. That's quite Western. And that goes partly with the culture that someone has won this, let's go do something else. Hmm. In China, it's very different. And that's this worry mentality. That is, you think you won, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> I mean, if, if Meituan doesn't become the operating system, they will be challenged from every single angle for their unit feature, right? But if you stitch 15 features together and become a, a solutions offering, mm. it's very hard to challenge from either one of them. Yeah, And that's a lesson that we should draw on, absolutely. I think we're starting to see it from the US. Facebook is trying certainly with uh, Messenger Pay and whatnot. I mean, they're trying to stitch these things in. The efforts are half-hearted and I don't think anyone has the true ambition of becoming that. Uber is trying it a little bit. I think we'll see more in the mobility space, mm. given scooters, bikes, you know, cars and whatnot. Why do I need five apps when I just need a one? Hmm. Digitally China is produced by me, Jacob Loven, Eva Xiao, and Tom Shang, and it's powered by Radii, an independent media platform exploring culture, innovation, and life in China. You can find them at radiichina.com. Thank you for listening.